It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, October 26th, 2010. I've made some executive decisions. My hope was to give you a uh, director's cut uh, edition of the uh, debate with Doug Paget, and I decided to first play it uh, without the director's cut. I want you to hear it uh, as it was, not uh, not with me commenting, so that uh, y'all can kind of get the flavor for what happened. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of bizarre, crazy things being said out there. Unfortunately, they're being said in churches. Now, uh, yesterday we played the uh, audio from my presupposition lecture uh, where I gave my presuppositions, and that's really what I built my case on. And uh, I expressed a desire to be able to play for you kind of a director's uh, a cut where I would uh, you know, I- interject, and th- there's a few reasons why I'm not doing that. Um, and uh, instead, what I'm going to do is t- today we're going to listen to part one of the debate and part one of the debate is, uh, you know, the, kind of the, the the meat and potatoes portion of it uh, before things kind of get crazier than they already were. But um, uh, the, the challenge right now is actually kind of twofold for me. Uh, number one challenge is is that uh, the folks over there at uh, at uh, Newburgh Christian Church, the, the audio segments. Uh, they were having recording problems, as you uh, if you may have heard in yesterday's edition of Fighting for the Faith, and uh, and so what we're doing is we're kind of having to piece together the uh, the audio from the debate from a several different sources. In fact, as you listen to this edition of Fighting for the Faith, if you think it sounds like Chris is pulling from two different audio sources, <laughs> yeah, I did. So uh, yeah, that's exactly what happened, and so. Today, what I want you to do is kind of, I, I, you know, I want to introduce you to the first hour of the debate, which I think is, uh, you know, kind of where the, the all the foundation work is done. And rather than me commenting on everything, I want to play it out uh, the way it happened so that you can kind of get the gist of uh, what went on there. And so, uh, and then the other uh, issue that is uh, kind of pressing in on me is that tomorrow I'm making an unscheduled trip to uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Not to meet with Doug Paget, but uh, you know, to take care of some other things, uh, stuff I'm not privy. Well, I can't really talk about it at the moment. Maybe I will be able to talk about it in the future. But uh, so tomorrow's going to be challenging for me, and I'm trying to get tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith in the can before I hit the road, uh, and then uh, that that'll free me up to hopefully be able to. Uh, uh, produce one, maybe two more editions of Fighting for the Faith this week. And I apologize, uh, again, this uh, trip that I'm making to Minnesota, uh, really unscheduled and kind of at the last uh, at the last second, but uh, I feel very strongly that I need to make this trip. So, uh, you know, I just want to let you know what's happening there. But uh, stay tuned. It's, it's all good. We'll get this all taken care of, including uh, my commentary on uh, Doug Paget's uh, opening argument, which I think is going to be the, where I want to spend the bulk of my time, kind of showing the differences between him and I. Anyway, 
So uh, without any further ado, here is the uh, opening hour. My my opening argument, Doug's opening argument, my opening rebuttal, Doug's opening rebuttal uh, from the uh, Believer's Reason conference that recently concluded there in uh, Newburgh, Oregon, just uh, outside of uh, Portland. So uh, here we go. Welcome to uh, this evening's debate. Uh, the thesis for this evening is there is a literal hell that men will go to if not saved. Uh, Chris Roseboro on my uh, left here will be taking the affirmative to that statement. Chris is the, uh, the captain of Pirate Christian Radio and hosts fighting, the Fighting for the Faith broadcast. He holds a degree in Biblical Languages and an MBA from Pepperdine University. His website is www.piratechristianradio.com. To my right is Doug Padgett. He is taking the negative to the statement tonight. He is the founding pastor of Solomon's Porch and a co-founder of the Emergent Village and a social and theological entrepreneur. Doug is married with four children and holds an MA in theology from Bethel Theological Seminary. Uh, His website is www.dougpaget.com. The format for tonight's debate, um, Chris Roseboro will be opening uh, with a 20-minute opening statement. Chris, when you're ready. Second. Are you ready? Yeah? All right. Hell. Interesting topic. I have people on my Facebook wall say, Chris, give them hell. (laughs) At the same time, though, it's a very deadly and serious topic, and one that's so important that we get right. Um, The reason being, because if we get this wrong, what's really at stake is the gospel and the very character and nature of God. Because if we're teaching falsely about God regarding eternal judgment and hell, then we're really blaspheming the character of God. So it's important that we keep that in mind as we examine the topic tonight. Now, I'm going to be building off of my presuppositions lecture that I gave earlier today. If you've missed that, then I apologize. You'll need to listen to that either via podcast or you know, contact me later, maybe talk on iTunes, whatever. But all that is, builds on this. You have to understand my presuppositions. And the basic idea is this. When we talk about hell, It's a nonsensical statement unless you have an authority that you can appeal to who can talk about it. Now, the metaphor I used in that was one that seems kind of silly but makes a lot of sense. Not to take the topic down, but the idea is is that you need somebody who can speak authoritatively on the subject much the same way that Walt Disney talks about Disneyland. He's the creator of it. He's the one who understands the vision behind it. He's the one who really thought the whole thing up and, and brought it into being. And so we need an authoritative person that we can go to in talking about hell. And I've made the case that Jesus Christ is that person in light of the fact that according to the eyewitness historical documents, which are reliable using the standard tests used in historiography, that Jesus Christ claimed to be none other than the God of the Jews in human flesh and proved that claim by rising from the dead on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, which both the scriptures as well as the creeds testify to. So, that being the case, we need to go to the primary source regarding hell, 
and that's Jesus Christ. Let me explain my methodology. What I'm going to do is I'm going to examine the eyewitness testimony regarding statements made by Jesus that pertain to the subject of eternal punishment. Examine the statements made by Jesus' disciples regarding eternal punishment in the New Testament letters. Examine the statements made by early, early Christians regarding eternal punishment with the idea that they learned the subject from the disciples. And now, all of this, these statements that I'm going to examine, these have to do with facts. But then we have to come up with an explanation as to why these statements were made and how to make coherent sense of them. That being the case, the last and primary part of the methodology that's important is that whatever explanation you have for what the disciples said, what Jesus said, and what the early Christians said, it must have explanatory power versus explanatory impotence. One theory, that the one that has explanatory power, is said to have more explanatory power than any other theory about the same subject matter if it can account for all of the facts that the second one does, but also explains the causes of other facts which the second one does not. So when we look at these statements, we have to come up with a theory or an explanation as to why these statements were made. That being the case, let's dive into them and we'll work through them quickly because I don't have a lot of time. Jesus regarding hell. It is not questioned at all that Jesus often spoke in parable and metaphor. And many of the parables that Jesus told pertain to the subject of eternal judgment. That being the case, what we really need is and we need Jesus giving us a literal explanation regarding hell and eternal judgment that isn't veiled in metaphorical language. It just so happens that we have such a case, and it's found in the eyewitness testimony recorded to, for us by Matthew Levi, the tax collector. In his gospel eyewitness account, he records in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, and verses 36 through 43, a parable and a literal explanation of the parable that pertains to eternal judgment. Says Matthew, Jesus told a parable where he said, um, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, Well, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest the, in the gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow up together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is the parable. There is a truth here regarding the kingdom of God that is being shrouded, if you would, or covered in metaphorical language. Now, when the disciples heard this, they didn't say, Right on! Amen, Jesus! They went, What? Okay. Matthew records what happens next, starting in verse 36. We pick it up. So then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Here is Jesus' literal interpretation of the metaphorical language that he used in the parable. Jesus is not engaging in double metaphor. He's engaging in 
giving you a literal understanding of the metaphorical language, says Jesus. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Pretty straightforward language going on here. The harvest is the close of the age, the reapers are the angels, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now I've pulled out one of the Greek phrases here, Eistein kaimenon tupuros. I'll come back to it, I'll explain later. Then he says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So, we have Jesus telling a parable, metaphorical language being employed, the disciples go, oh, and then Jesus decodes the whole thing for us. Metaphor, the one who sows the good seed, well, that equals the son of man, or Jesus. Metaphor, weeds, literal meaning sons of the evil one. Metaphor, enemy, literal meaning the devil. Metaphor, the harvest, literal meaning the close of the age. Metaphor, reapers, literal meaning the angels. Metaphor, weeds being burned, literal meaning, fiery furnace. Jesus said, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Interesting phrase. Eistein kaimanon tu puros. If you know Greek, then you will immediately recognize that there are two definite articles used in this phrase. Two of them. Jesus is speaking emphatically literal translation, into the furnace of the fire. The, the. Interesting thing, unique phrase in this sense also. It appears one time in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, in the Septuagint. And somebody who was familiar with the Greek Old Testament at that time, a reader or the hearer of the Septuagint, would have immediately picked up on this. It appears in Daniel chapter 3, verse 6. Let me read it in context. This is regarding Nebuchadnezzar and his big golden idol, demanding people to bow down and worship it. This is the proclamation of Nebuchadnezzar. The herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. In the Septuagint, Eistein Kaimanon Tu Puros, exact same emphatic statement. Fiery furnace, you don't hear that very often, do you? And Jesus wasn't speaking metaphorically here because he's giving the literal meaning of the metaphors from the parable. With that in mind, come up with the basis then of basically saying when Jesus be talking about eternal judgment, he means it. That whole fire thing, that doesn't come from Dante and the Inferno. That comes from Jesus. In fact, if you were to go back and reread, and I challenge you to do this, the Gospel of Matthew and do it in one setting. It can be done. I know that we live in a very interesting time when the television and other things distract us. Shut down Twitter, close your laptop, turn off the television and sit down in one setting. And Read the Gospel of Matthew with one thing in mind. 
What does Jesus teach regarding the end times and man's fate? Is Jesus a universalist? Is Jesus somebody who says it's all going to work out in the end? Or does Jesus teach that there's going to be a judgment and separation? Okay? Read Matthew and answer that question. You'll be surprised by the answer when you read it in context, which is how the narrative is supposed to be read anyway. We continue. That being the case, let's now look at some of Jesus' other statements. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down and sorted uh, the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. Same chapter, same themes, same metaphors, same meanings. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into Aestain Kaimanon Tupuras, the furnace of the fire. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus' view on this is actually very clear. From the Sermon on the Mount, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then you will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew chapter 25 probably gives us the most clear teaching on this next to Matthew 13. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. That's the context. When is this? The close of the age. Same time frame that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 13. All the nations will be gathered before Him. Old, passed away, and present. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The judgment has already taken place at this point, by the way. You're judged by what you are first, secondly by what you've done. Species is the, is the separation point. You are either saved and a Christian and a sheep, or you are an unbeliever and a goat. You are separated by what you are. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. And you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Watch the response of the goats. Well, of course we did that because if we didn't do that, we wouldn't make it into heaven. Oh, sorry. <laughs> then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? Notice the shock on the sheep's the sheep were just doing sheepy things and you, know, you don't really pay attention to that. When do we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick and in prison and go to visit you? King will cry, I'll tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into spatial there. Into the eternal fire. The fire that is eternal. Eternal is modifying the noun fire. 
Prepare for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They're being judged by what they didn't do. They will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes? All of that stuff. And Jesus will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Here's the key phrase. Notice the parallelism. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. To deny eternal punishment is literally to negate eternal life. The two are bound together so inextricably to deny the one is to deny the other. And this is consistent with what Jesus gave us as the literal interpretation of his parable of the weeds. Okay? Now, one other thing. Jesus talks about the end times. says, those who have done good will go to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We're all resurrected at the end. Just and unjust. Keep that in mind. We'll get back to that later. Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The concept of the wrath of God, eternal punishment, the fiery furnace, hell, eternal judgment, all of that, the clearest teacher in all of the scripture on this is Jesus. It is not Paul. It is not Peter. It is not Jude. It is Jesus. Jesus was literally a hellfire preacher. He was the first one to model it. Now, when we look at the apostles, the apostles pick up on this as well. For instance, Paul, his teaching is consistent with Jesus. He teaches a literal hell. He teaches a literal judgment. Second Thessalonians chapter five, uh, chapter one, verses five through twelve. I'll just point out the important part, talking about those who are causing suffering to the Christians. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints, and He will be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So when you follow Jesus' teaching, the disciples, when you look at how they understood Jesus, they always understood Jesus literally. Not speaking figuratively. Warning people of the wrath to come. In fact, the precursor to Jesus was John the Baptist. And what was his clarion call? To the Pharisees, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Even John, who prepared the way for Jesus, taught that. Moving ahead, Peter also picks up on this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-10. False prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and bringing swift judgment upon themselves, Many will follow their sensuality, because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, yet by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen. You want a picture of hell? Look at Sodom and Gomorrah. What is going to happen to the ungodly? And he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct 
of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. From Jesus to Peter to Paul, back to John, the book of Revelation. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, speaking of the last day. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, consistent with Jesus' pictures, especially the little interpretation going back to Matthew chapter 13. And real quickly, the early church taught the same thing. Over and again, from Ignatius to Irenaeus to Tertullian, all of the church fathers, Mothetes, Polycarp, all taught the same thing. I don't have time to go into the rest of it here. Probably I'll get back to it during one of my rebuttal times. And we'll talk about salvation at the end. Thank you for your time. All right, that was my opening argument at the uh, Believer's Reason conference and debate. Uh, that was my opening argument, uh, building the case uh, using the eyewitness testimony regarding the teaching of Jesus, who proved that he was the one true God, the God of the Jews and human flesh, by raising himself from the dead, and what he taught regarding the final judgment, hell, and the fiery furnace and fire, and all that kind of stuff, and how that line goes from him to the disciples. And uh, I make allusion to it now, but we'll get it. I'll give examples of it later of how this plays out in the writings of the early church. Now, as promised, what I'll be doing is I will be making my PowerPoint slides uh, for my opening argument available as part of the download for this podcast. So if you follow me on iTunes, uh, you might want to go there. If you don't follow me on iTunes, uh, you'll find it on the Fighting for the Faith website where this edition of Fighting for the Faith is posted. We're going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back with uh, Doug Paget's opening argument uh, regarding hell. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dream? 
when you're awake. Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts. Walking around like regular people. They don't see the truth. They only see what they want to believe. They don't know their sin their sins. How often do you see them? Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, it's the eyewitness testimony, not postmodern deconstruction that decides whether or not Jesus taught regarding hell, or what he taught. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts, financial contributions, and partnership with us in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you, as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so. Uh, make a one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, Zip code 46038. All right. Here is Doug Paget's uh, opening, uh, well, statement. Uh, well, you'll see what I mean. Here, here's, uh, here's Doug Paget. Uh, Doug Paget will now have a 20-minute uh, opening statement, after which we will remove the podium and uh, begin the rebuttal section. We, uh, Chris and I, uh, took an invitation to engage in a debate, uh, something that both of us don't do normally. We were invited to come into a particular forum to have a conversation. The moderator was our, also our inviter, and he framed the question when we started. We're not talking about everything under the Bible. We're not talking about everything in Christianity. We're talking about one specific question, and this is the sort of nature of this kind of debate. The question is... There is a literal hell where man goes to if not saved. That's the question. That's the argument. 
So as I put together my thoughts and Chris put together his thoughts, it was around that particular question that we're answering. So Chris is supposed to get up here and say, here's why I think it is a literal place. And then my job is to get up and to say, I don't know that you proved that point. So as the moderator told us earlier, Chris's job is in the affirmative. My job is simply to show if he made his case or not. Now, whether you find that to be an interesting project and what you came out for or not, we talked earlier, could seem a little frustrating, right? So I can simply say, Chris did not make the point. He didn't make it as a literal place. If anything, he made the argument that it's a literal furnace. That was his argument. If anything at all, he said it's a literal furnace. He decides to take Jesus' explanation of the parable and not give it a spiritual explanation connected to the Old Testament narrative. He gives it a literal and gave us some pictures up there with equal signs and said it was a furnace. And then throughout, you don't hear a lot about it being a furnace, do you? Because nobody has ever described hell as simply a literal furnace with a fire somewhere in the middle. Then we go to the, to the story... Daniel, and now we're supposed to conjure up that. We know what that first looks like. Is that what any of us coming in here who believed in hell would have thought hell was? A literal furnace? Or is furnace some sort of word picture? Because later we're told it's the lake of fire, but not a furnace. So his argument is, it's a furnace, literally. So, but it seems to me We've got a couple good people together here, Chris and I, and all of you. We could talk about a few other things other than that argument. That would seem a little, a little wasteful, wouldn't it? That he has to argue that it's a literal place, and the best he can come up with is one section out of Matthew that he chooses to interpret literally, and I choose to interpret spiritually and figuratively, and then we could have a debate about the literalness of interpretations of parables around the furnaceness. Nah. We'll do a little bit more. So... On occasion, just for the point of the very fine debate put together by Ken, we will have to come back to the point of he didn't make his point. But there's more to it than that. So let's talk about what's more to it than that, if we could. Now, Chris said earlier in his opening argument, and I think this is quite important, that, we, that there's this authority that exists. The scripture has authority. Then he said, but we don't have access actually to the Walt Disney so now we're one step removed from the Walt Disney, and now we're going to listen to an eyewitness account. And then he said, and that's empirical evidence. I would simply argue as a social scientist, that's not empirical evidence. That's not what the word empirical evidence actually means. It's not empirical evidence. What we're doing is we're both going to be guides and opinionators and teachers of what we think that means. Now, I think that happens to be in the very fine tradition of Christianity. So, I would like you to think about two passages with me, and I'm sorry they're not up here, so you're just going to have to listen to them. One of them comes out of 1 Timothy 3.16. I, when I was first introduced to Christianity, it was a stream of folks who uh, liked to do Bible memorization, so they taught us how to do Bible memorization, and one of the ways we did that uh, Bible memorization with the navigators was that we would memorize a verse and then state it and then the verse again. And we would often go through a little sets of verses together. So some of us memorized the three sixteens. And we know all the way through the Bible all the interesting three sixteens. So one of them uh, reads like this. 1 Timothy 3.16 Beyond all question, Paul writes to Timothy, 
the mystery of godliness is great. There's a great mystery to all of this. And then in, in 2 Timothy 3.16, writes this. However, Timothy, my insertion, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The godly will be persecuted, he says. While evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Can I repeat that one without it being too rhetorical? Continue to learn, I'm sorry, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you've learned it. And how from infancy you've been taught to know the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. For all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the one of God, so that the so that the, the person of God may be thoroughly equipped in every good work. See, it's a fine tradition that we have in Christianity that we don't treat the text as if it is our authority. God is our authority, and we follow God as we have been taught through the traditions that we follow. So both Chris and I are going to be representing a tradition, and we're going to be arguing from a tradition. But we are not objective readers of that tradition. I'm going to be arguing tonight that one cannot stand back from the scriptures and say, it wasn't me, it's just the scripture saying it. For the scriptures don't simply say anything. They're coded in English for us. They've been coded in other languages for others. And what we do is we engage with them and interpret them. So I will select certain passages and put an emphasis on part of it. And Chris will do the same. Because what we're doing is the tradition of saying this story of God is not one that sits objectively out in history. It's one that's embedded within our lives and our communities. And just as Paul says, what you have seen in me, I want you to put into practice. Paul does not separate himself from the narrative and say, I'm simply writing things that are true. He's saying, these are from me, and I'm giving them to you, and you should keep leading, and then you lead people in that way. So the tradition of Christianity has always been that we're going to think about the faith like those around us think about faith. As opposed to this introduction that we got earlier and again tonight, that somehow it's an objective, empirical truth that we can simply walk up to, and it simply is what it is. I'm going to make a couple of points as to this argument of hell. And I'm going to tell you why I think that believing it as a place is not the way we ought to think about it. So let me suggest to you that when I say that I do not want to think about hell as a place, that is not the same thing as saying I do not believe that there is judgment. That is not saying the same thing that I do not think there's consequence. That is not saying that I don't think that there's such a thing as death. That is not saying that there's not such a thing as purification. That is not saying that I don't believe that what we live and how we live has consequences. Our argument tonight, as invited by our, our, our debate host, was, is the way we should think about hell as a literal place or not? 
So normally in conversation, you have a wide range that you're going to go on. In this case, we're going to have a narrow range we're going to go on. Many people would say, hey, Doug, I, you're just killing me here because I read the Bible and I see the word hell, and then you sit here and say, it's, don't think about it like it's a real place. And they're not talking about going into a parable in Matthew 13 and then taking a parable and interpreting a parable as if it's literalism. One would not get away with this. None of you have cut your hands off. None of you have gouged out your eyes. You simply don't do such things. And do not do it. I'm not encouraging you to take parables literally. But they say, look, I, I've read the Bible and I see the word hell. If you read the Old Testament, you will see the word hell, I think it's 67 times in the Old Testament. For every time in the King James Version, the word death, pit, grave is used, the translators of the King James translation put the word hell. So here's what you, we, we all do uh, in translations. You, you know this. When a translator translates, they have a choice to do a word-for-word -word translation or a thought-for-thought -thought translation. So when you run across a word, you have to make a decision in its original language. What word would we use in English? And very often there's not a one-to-one -one equivalent. So you have to pick a word. So when the, old, when the King James authors were putting together King James uh, translations, they used for, for death and pit and grave the word hell. You read your translations and you follow, you don't find hell anywhere in the Old Testament. You read the King James Version and you find the word hell in the Old Testament. Because most of our modern translations have realized that's not what that word means. Let's use the word that the Hebrew means. Let's use the word grave or pit or death. So all of a sudden you could go from reading the King James and finding the word hell 67 times to reading the New Testament or to reading another translation of the Old Testament and finding it zero times. And you can read the New Testament in some translations and find Jesus speaking the word hell and other translations and Jesus is not speaking the word hell, he's speaking the word for the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem in a metaphoric way. But some of you have been taught that hell and fiery furnace and lake of fire are all kind of the same thing. And if they were the same thing, I would suggest to you, Jesus and the other authors would have simply used the same word. We're not unclear in reading the Bible about what Jesus asks of us in relationship to one another. It's not hard to find. You don't have to dig up a parable and pull out the Greek. You don't have to suppose that Jesus spoke in the Greek in order to translate what he meant. You don't have to know ancient languages to know that Jesus calls us to love one another, to live sacrificially, and to care for all. You, you're not confused about that, but you are confused about this notion of hell, and if you are, it's because the scripture does not speak to it in the way that our traditions have taught us. So when one says, well, whom do we trust? Well, let's trust the Bible rather than man. They have stepped outside the stream. Christian tradition. So the Bible itself does not argue for hell. It may argue for a picture of a fiery furnace, but that is not hell. That word isn't used. Now, we may have to construct a way of thinking about what the world is with that fiery furnace. Fair enough. We should have that conversation, and tonight we most certainly will. Church history does not argue the way that Chris argues this point. Now, he can find a stream or two of people, and he is familiar with his stream, and they will argue the way he does, and that's fair. Because like Paul was teaching Timothy and Timothy was teaching disciples, he falls into that stream, his own stream. 
I happen to think that the stream of Reformed theology varies from the traditional New Testament thinking through Augustine, and, and, uh, and uh, Chris may not, so we'll have a little quibbling about that. You'll hear that out of us tonight. But church history is broad on this subject. My views would be much more similar to, and I hate to, in, in, you know, to impugn the Eastern Orthodox Church, but my views on this would be much more like the Eastern Orthodox Church, which would not be like the Reformed tradition on this topic. And the Anabaptists have another view on it, and Jewish tradition has another, and some of the patristic fathers have yet another view. Simply put, the history of the church is not clear on the one point that Chris is going to be making tonight. They simply don't talk about that. <coughs> the Bible doesn't say it the way he says it. Church history doesn't say it the way he says it. Churches today don't say it the way he says it. Churches today... Some disagreeable, some higher, some lower in their views, some talk about it a lot. But most of your churches, you haven't talked about hell very frequently. Some of you, I met you today, start and end with it, fair enough, but not everyone does. Many, many churches don't talk about it at all. It's almost enough to make someone say, through the history of Christianity in our day, why is that? Is it that this view of hell is one that is not an essential teaching that we all get right, but rather is one that we're free to have differing opinions about? Now, your tradition may not tell you that, but I would argue that church history and churches today tell us precisely that. This is one of those points that you can differ on and not be outside the camp. It also goes against people's sensibilities. We wouldn't have laughed at the introduction that Chris gave, give him hell, if we really thought that what he read tonight was literally what was going to happen to your loved ones. Now come on, I know that some of us have been taught that we cannot disagree with our stream and we don't know what to do about those who've taught us and we're not sure how to answer all these questions, but the response would not be laughter. We would never say, give him cancer. Cancer's not a punchline. Give them autism. It's not a punchline. There's something about the fact that we can even speak about hell and it's a punchline that tells us through the work of the Spirit that it is not the meaning that my friend is giving to it. It cannot be. Or we are the cruelest, cruelest of people. It does not fit the story of God's activity through all of the Old Testament, this literal place the story of God is that people are stuck in a place. The story of God that, that what it means to be punished by God is that you're in a fiery furnace that you can't get out of. doesn't fit the story at all. Now you can find one passage where Jesus uses this language, but if you went through all the book of, of Matthew with either one of us, you could construct any of those in literalism and have yourself a real day. But the story of God, the big story of the creation and recreation of all things, of God's love affair with all of humanity and all of creation, with this book of Romans tells us that all of creation is groaning as if in birth bangs for the sons of God to be revealed. This story is bigger and better. It is not about who gets to go to the fiery furnace and who goes to the pearly gates. Those imagery of the first test of the first century and second century that is wonderful and beautiful and we should keep it, but we should not act as if that is our story. You wouldn't have to work this hard to know the Jesus story. I would suggest, even though I was getting a little yelly there, I would suggest to you. The Bible doesn't say it the way my friend Chris does. Church history 
doesn't consistently say it the way my friend Chris does. Churches today don't say it the way that Chris does. People's sensibilities don't allow them to say it the way Chris does. The entire story of God doesn't say it the way that Chris does. So simply put, I agree with this great cloud of witnesses. And I don't say it the way that Chris does. So we have this process of making these opening statements and they're trying to guess what each other's going to say and try to anticipate it and then I come up with something clever and then Chris will come up with something in his world that's clever and then we're going to do our opening statements and here we go. So, what's the story we're going to tell tonight? We're going to zero in regularly. Is hell a place? And if so, what kind of place? We're going to go down the route of, well, it literally is a furnace. Then let's start describing the literal nature of the furnace. And it has to be forever and always a furnace. Not a lake of fire, not a sense of torment, not separation from God is not hell in this view. A furnace is hell in this view. Unless what Jesus is doing is using colorful, full language so that people understand what he's saying without being literalists. Why is it that he has to go to one passage out of Matthew to pick as the place? And then the rest of these all have to do with imagery of fire and punishment and purification. And I would suggest to you, and we'll say it now, that the wrath that God has is not poured out on people, it is poured out on anything that is incongruent with God. God's desire is for all to be saved and to be part of the recreated heavens and earth. I am a recreationist that is a holist that says everything matters and God's love extends to everything and everyone. And no matter what tradition you come from, whether they tell you had to be baptized or you have to profess, whether you have to eat something or you have to do something, no matter what tradition you come from, they may be telling you that that promise of God is only for some of you and I think the gospel of Jesus tells you that it is for all of us. So the story that I'm arguing is not that we get away with murder. It's that murder never wins over resurrection power of the love of God. So we'll get back into some of the details of this particular passage. We're going to go through this cross-examination uh, process. If you don't know how these work, we're going to pull up some chairs and sit here. We have rules and a moderator that's going to make us talk about it the way we want to talk about it. So thank you for allowing me to make my opening. Okay, that was Doug's opening argument. Here is my first rebuttal. Chris, you will now have uh, 10 minutes for a rebuttal to uh, Doug's opening statement. Uh, not, not, not until the uh, cross examination. Oh, you're going to rebut? Yes. Always love the word. All right, we begin. <coughs> Well, Doug's uh, opening statement reminds me of H.L. Mencken's <coughs> classic description of Warren G. Harding's work. Says Mencken, it reminds me of a string of wet sponges. It reminds me of tattered washing on the line. It reminds me of the stale bean soup of college yells, of dogs barking idiotically through endless nights. It is so bad that a sort of grandeur creeps into it. 
It drags itself out of the dark abysm. It was about to write abscess of fish and crawls insanely up to the utmost pinnacle of posh. It's a rumble, it's a bump, it's a flap, it's a doodle, it's a ball, it's a dash. <laughs> Church. 
And where did they get this idea from? Remember when I talked about my methodology, I said that I was going to read for you the statements, the eyewitness statements, and that we had to come up with a way of explaining what these men said. Now, it's really easy just to say, oh, Chris, you're just a literalist. Well, I would say that Doug is a literalist also. He's selectively literal, just as I'm selectively literal. For instance, when Jesus says, as he's approaching Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would that I would gather you like a chick gathers her, a hen gathers her chicks. If I was just a cold, stale literalist, I would have to assume from the text that Jesus is a big chicken man. That he probably was the prototype for the San Diego Padres chicken, which I think is very funny. Okay, but I don't see any church art going back to the first century or even in the middle period, middle age period, where Jesus is portrayed as a big chicken. The reality is, is that some parts of scripture are to be understood literally. Some parts are poetic and they're metaphorical. But just because they're metaphorical or poetic doesn't mean that they're not conveying a truth. Let me give you an example. If I were to say to my wife something like this, I'm stealing this. Shall I compare, compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely, more temperate. Now let me rewrite this, I'm a nerd. Shall I compare thee to an iPad screen? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. <laughs> now I'm using poetic language, okay? Should you deduce from the fact that I'm using poetic and metaphorical language that I don't literally love my wife? That's an that valid conclusion. Or we can worse. Should we conclude because I'm discussing about my love of my wife in poetic and metaphorical language that therefore my wife doesn't exist? It doesn't make any sense. We use different types of language to create word pictures. And these word pictures are designed to convey an understanding of, the, of a true thing. And the true thing is generally greater than the word pictures used to describe them, not less than. So when Jesus is saying, oh, I would gather me like a hen gathers her chicks, Jesus here is conveying in poetic, metaphorical language his love and anguish over the fact that the people there in Jerusalem would not repent. Even though he, God, condescended to do everything possible to save them and bring them to himself, and yet they would not. It's a tragic picture, and the word language that he uses brings that up. So, unfortunately, Doug, in a very colorful way, I love the way he did it, engaged in obfuscation, and in some cases, postmodern deconstructionism. But the reality is, is that, based upon the eyewitness testimony, Doug has not given us what would be, a, what, how did I phrase it at the beginning of the debate? Let me find my notes here. It's something that had explanatory power. He didn't deal with any of the text. What he gave us has no explanatory power. In fact, it suffers from a severe case of explanatory impotence, and I don't think any explanatory enhancement products will help get that. I yield the floor. Thank you. Okay, up next is uh, Doug Padgett, his rebuttal to my rebuttal, and uh, <clears throat> let's continue. Uh, Doug, you now have uh, 10 minutes uh, for rebuttal. The way the debate is set up is we both give opening arguments, and then we respond to what the other person said. I, I cheated that a little bit, because I just couldn't help it. They came with this uh, 
Matthew 13. So I'll spend the rest of the evening taking apart the argument that has been made only because it's what we're going to do for the next few hours. I don't think. Again, the, the point is that I don't have to make the argument. Chris has to make the argument for the point of the debate. But for the edification of us all, I will do what I can do. Chris didn't respond to the fact that he uses hell flippantly. It seems incongruent with his real belief on it. He's a, he's, he's a passionate, principled man who then makes light of the most serious topic that he says he holds to. That's not a personal critique. That is a statement about the fact that sometimes our system tells us that we have to say we believe things, even when it becomes very difficult for us. Chris made the statement early on in his opening part this afternoon, and I apologize that you didn't have a chance to hear this. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot what I was going to say about that. Chris sets up this, this binary dilemma in his statements earlier about how we're going to approach the scriptures. They could be metaphorical, he says, and referred to as if metaphor is somehow weaker. And then comes in the rebuttal moment here and says, metaphor is just as powerful. That's what I've been going to be saying all night. Metaphor doesn't mean it's not true. We, we shouldn't use the phrase just a metaphor. It's not just a metaphor. It very simply is a metaphor. Secondly, a parable is not a metaphor. A parable is a parable. In our English language, we can say, oh, parable is just metaphor. It's not just a metaphor. It's a parable. Any of you who have read any other parables in the English literature know that. In first century Judaism, a parable wasn't seen as a metaphor. Point I'm making, there would be nothing wrong with Jesus explaining a parable with a metaphor. The passage that he read, the Matthew 13, he cut one verse out. I'm not saying it was deliberate. I would have done the same thing if I was making his point. The verse that he didn't focus on was, after, and the weeds will be pulled up and burned in the fire, so, that, so, uh, so it will be at the end of the age. This is in the literal explanation section. So the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out the kingdom of everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them in the fiery furnace, a literal fiery furnace, explaining the earlier parable, Chris wants us to believe, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which he says is literal. People are going to have teeth, and they will have tear ducts. Fair enough. Then the next phrase is, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The next line, that the righteous will shine like the sun. That is a metaphor. So either you believe what Chris is saying, that with a parable you cannot explain a metaphor, or you say, we will all be like suns shining. And not like a sun, literally a sun shining. So he's going to pick on the Mormons for their idea that you get to be the, 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 the god of your own planet but then is going to say you, because of the textual way of reading Matthew 13, and it cannot be metaphoric, has to mean you will shine like a sun. And that doesn't mean like a sun in a metaphoric way. That means you have to be a sun just as the fiery furnace has to be the fiery furnace. 
So either the argument is, there literally is a fiery furnace and you literally are going to shine, shine like the sun, or Jesus is doing something else. And I would suggest, very clearly, Jesus is doing something else. And what he's doing is righteous and beautiful and great, and I agree with him all the way. This is going to be a funny thing for some of you, um, that you that hold my view on this thing. You've never met someone like Chris, and you're going to say to yourself, I believe the Bible? Yeah, that seems strange to me. Never heard somebody talk like that, believe the Bible. Or for maybe off chance, there's one of you who would view it the other way around. <laughs> is it interesting <laughs> that this powerful philosophy, doctrine, unshakable, is found in the way that we had to find it? Now, can you read Matthew and find that those who do not live in congruency with God are living as if they are opposition to God and God will do something about that someday? Absolutely, you're going to find that. Is the way God's going to deal that put them in a place rather than make them a part of the healing of all of creation? Our argument when we're being real guys and not debaters is not about is there a place? It's about what's the role of punishment. And so then we're going to have to talk about, if we can do it tonight or not, I don't know, we're going to have to talk about what wrath means. We're going to have to talk about God's overall intention for all of the cosmos <coughs> is. And it's in that story that it fits. It, truthfully, the story of God does not have to fit into the stream that Chris has chosen to participate in. It is not subject to the stream of theologians that he chooses to listen to. Nor is it subject to my stream. We are both doing something with it all the time. And I will tell you regularly tonight that I am one who holds what I believe in as open-handed way as I can, trying to recognize when possible that what I'm talking about right now is something that I think because this is how I was led to think about it and sometimes chose to think about it. And I have to say in rebuttal, and we'll say it a bunch of times and we've said it personally, I don't think Chris does that. <coughs> I think Chris says that he comes to it objectively and only occasionally selectively. Actually, I feel that he moves sort of between, I'm just a guy from California, what do I know? It's not me, the interpreter. But then he stands up and says, I will tell you precisely what this means. He's stuck in the place between, is he the authority that you listen to? to explain these things, and is the explanation just simply an objective process, or is Chris actually affecting the very explanation that he's giving? And I would say, as a postmodern deconstructionist, that's exactly what he's doing. And what we should do is show that to one another when we do it, so that people can say, and I still want to follow your way of thinking. It doesn't get any weaker. Now, I will ask Chris later, and I don't think it's fair to sort of spring people's questions on, spring questions on him later. I'm going to ask him if there are any church history, if there are any church fathers with whom Chris disagrees. You already know the answer. Of course there are. There's some things they've said that he wouldn't hold to. I'm going to ask him, are there any church fathers who would disagree with what he believes? He would say, of course there are. There have been. So now we're not dealing with a man who is simply in the stream of what everyone has thought all along and no one's ever varied from it. Now we're listening to an argument made by somebody who says, this is how my people think about these things. And to feign objectivity 
gets, gets me a little revved up sometimes because I think that it's not particularly helpful. The problem is not that Chris is a full-time literalist. The problem is that on certain doctrines, Chris has to become a literalist. The argument made earlier today that speaking of hell is not in vogue is simply out of touch with reality. Even though your churches don't talk about it and laugh about it, try to say that you don't believe it and see how fast you will be brought into proper thinking. Right orthodoxy. Try to vary a bit. It could be that he is just the pirate Christian radio guy that's on the outlying sides and he's trying to hold it all together and he's the only one telling the truth. Where in, in honesty, this is the accepted view of most churches even though they have not thought about it. It just simply is the doctrine that people have been handed and we've chosen to deal with it in our own ways by keeping quiet, by digging in deep, or by sometimes having to laugh it off. I have 30 seconds left, but I will give that to the time gods. Thank you, Doug. Okay, now I'm going to uh, stop right there, and that's going to be our episode of Fighting for the Faith. And the reason being is is that you know we're still getting in files and and uh, kind of piecing together all of this stuff. So, what did you think? You know, I'd love to get your feedback. And you know, very interesting debate. Uh, two completely different ways of approaching a text and uh, and approaching the question. So I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. is facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.